Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 25 today. I'm going to read a few more verses than that. But we're in this section where Paul's describing how we're to live out of our new lives in Christ. Now that we're uh, a person is a new creation, born again, how is life to be lived? Uh, right now he's dealing with in the family and within the marriage. So in verse 25 he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, Father, I pray that you would open up your word to us this morning. Father, that it would fall upon us for what it really is, not good suggestions, but uh, these are the commands you give the husband and the wife in regards to marriage. And uh, Father, we ask that you would just work uh, in the marriages in our church. Father, that you'd be preparing young hearts that would one day be married. And uh, Father, that uh, we would see how this points to the gospel. We just pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One common aspect uh, of Christians that we should be known for, if if you're going to ask somebody, uh, most Christians would know that we're supposed to be known uh, by our love for one another. Uh, the world should look at us and say, that's something different uh, that I haven't seen before. Uh, but I want to propose a second thing Christians should be known for. Uh, the second thing is, we should be known for our repentance and our faith. Christians... Uh, Repentance and faith should describe the very nature of our lives. Meaning that when people look at us, one of the things they continually see is this understanding of our falling short in our sin and then turning to Christ uh, for grace. Uh, The word repentance means to turn around. Uh, 
in our sin, we seek to find life in rebellion to God. And we're called to repent, confess our sins, and turn to Christ. That He would be our life. And uh, when we think about what brings about thoughts of repentance or, or guilt, uh, there are certain topics that come up, like, for example, prayer. I don't know if anyone ever hears a sermon on prayer and feels like, I'm praying enough. Uh, especially when the Scripture calls us to pray continually. And so it's easy to feel a sense of, okay, I need to repent in regards to the topic of prayer. Well, this morning we're going to look at the glorious purpose of marriage. We're going to look at God's glorious purpose of marriage. And if you're being honest right now, some of you, or maybe most of you, feel kind of how you feel when the topic of prayer comes up. Because when sinners get married, and you want to use words like the glorious purpose of marriage, uh, there's pain there. Uh, guilt can instantly kind of come into our minds and we can feel a sense of of guilt. But it's an opportunity for repentance. And I want to begin this morning by just reminding us why that's a good and beautiful thing. In Luke 15.7, and really uh, throughout the chapter of Luke 15, Jesus is teaching about something that heaven loves. Heaven throws a party when a certain thing happens. Luke 15, 7 says, uh, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Heaven is not impressed by mankind looking at themselves as basically good in and of themselves. And you might think heaven rejoices when we really get it right, when we just nail it. But Christ says heaven rejoices when sinners repent, when they see their sin and confess their sin and repent of their sin. And then in verse 10 of the same chapter, he says, just so I tell you, there's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this morning, let's bring joy to heaven. Husbands, you're going to be the target of the message. But you're not the only ones that can be blessed by a command that is given to husbands. There's many here who, if you're not married now, might one day be married. And you ought to be living your life in such a way, becoming the type of person that would be the type of wife or the type of husband 
uh, God would call you to be. And if the Lord does not have marriage for you, uh, marriage, according to our text, is meant to point us to the gospel, the union of Christ and his church. So I hope that uh, everyone would lean into uh, this message. Uh, to begin with, let's consider the goal of marriage. We're going to spend much more time on this in a few weeks uh, because we see at the end of our text uh, what the goal of marriage is. Uh, but you can see in your notes, becoming one out of reverence for Christ is what I believe this text teaches. The goal of marriage is oneness. The goal of marriage is unity. In fact, there's four times in the Bible when God highlights the goal of marriage. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. So that's an action to be taken. And hold fast to his wife. There's a covenant promise commitment. And they shall become one flesh. And there you see the end goal, the unity. In Matthew 19.5, Jesus repeats this. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In Mark 10, uh, verse 6, he says, when asked about whether divorce was lawful for any reason, uh, Jesus says, God made them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. You see that added comment Christ gives to it? So that they're no, no longer two, but one. What therefore God is joined together, let man not separate. You know, often we hear about why it is such a sin to uh, destroy a human life in the womb uh, through abortion. And one of the arguments we would make is, well, that's God's, that's God's workshop where He makes images of Himself, people created in the image of God. Well, God makes something else that's glorious. Because Jesus just said in Mark 10, what what therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. It's not just two people committing themselves to each other in marriage, but it's God uniting them together. It's something God does. Yes, there's a mystery to it, but oneness is the goal. A husband and wife sharing oneness. The end of our text in Ephesians leads to this very thing where he says, uh, actually in verse 29 he says, no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it 
just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Christ cherishes the church because we are members of his body. He's the head and we're the members is the illustration. And then he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is a mystery. So the goal of marriage is oneness and it points us to, marriage points us to our oneness with Christ. What two ordinances did God give the church? He gave us baptism and He gave us the Lord's Supper. In both of them, baptism is uh, this visible, tangible uh, uh, entering in to the body of Christ. Communion is this visible, tangible, you can taste it, reality of our communion with one another. But both of them are all about are being united to Christ in the new covenant. The best news in the world. Christ's death under the wrath of God is our death for our sin. So that we don't need to fear condemnation. Christ's resurrection is from the dead. We are united to as Christians. And so both ordinances point us to that union. And marriages are meant to point us to the gospel. So the point of the marriage is oneness. Wayne Mack, a biblical counselor, here's how he describes it. He says, marriage is a total commitment and a total sharing of the total person with another person until death. God's intention is that when two people get married, they should share everything. Their bodies, their possessions, their insights, their ideas, their abilities, their problems, their successes, their sufferings, their failures, etc. They should share everything together. That's what God would have for you. That's what a good marriage would look like. You know, in our culture, if you're just not fighting, if you can just tolerate each other in the home, it's considered a pretty good marriage when 50% of the marriages today end in divorce. And so we're tempted to settle for something less than God has given us. And to have the goal of marriage, both the husband and wife need to embrace the role God has given them. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, and husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loves the church. That's how oneness uh, can be. And this love that we're called to. So the next three weeks, we're basically unpacking our verse today. Uh, the rest of the verses is unpacking how Christ loved the church because that's how husbands are called 
to love their wives. And as these sermons go, they'll get more and more uh, practical uh, examples with them. But this morning, we're going to spend a big chunk of our time just considering uh, the love of Christ. If that's how we're supposed to love our wives, and this is a love that I... Just last night, I told Laura, <laughs> preparing this message, I said, honey, I got some good news for you. It can get way better than what it's been. Because when the standard is Christ's love, then that means marriages, all marriages, can get way better because there's always opportunity for us as husbands to recognize how we're falling short and to repent and turn to Christ. So let's look at the command. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. So, wives were called to submit. Husbands are called to lead. They were described as the head of the marriage relationship. So with this authority, or with this headship or leadership, what are they supposed to do with it? They're supposed to love. Now get this. All leadership, all authority is poison when it is not uh, unleashed in love. Any authority, any leadership, anywhere that is not motivated by love will be a poison type of authority. Which is why it's hard for us to think of anyone in an authoritative position as good. Because we have so many examples uh, and and we ourselves, me, myself, as an example, someone who's called to uh, be a leader in the church and yet in so many ways uh, fall short of the love of Christ. This love, the word in the Greek is probably the Greek word that most people know. If you know any Greek word, it's agape love. It's the type of love that is a self-sacrificing love. It's a love that's a choice. It's not that it doesn't have affection or feelings in it. It most certainly does. But it's fundamentally a choice. It's a commitment. And it's self-sacrificial. All Christians in fact, are called to this. The husbands are in the crosshairs in this text, but, but back in Ephesians 5.1, the beginning of this chapter, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, those who have received agape love from Christ. And then he says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So this is how Christians are to love each other, with self-sacrificial love. He gave himself up for us. So the headship that husbands are given, the leadership 
husbands are given is not this scary thing because it's to be unleashed in selfless, self-sacrificial love. And love of all the virtues always rises to the top. In 1 Corinthians 13.13, we read, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. At the beginning of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Paul gives these examples. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. So this would be a husband in leadership that doesn't insist on his own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So how is agape love different than worldly love? That passage gets read at weddings where the couple being married aren't believers so often. And a non-believer cannot love like the type of love we just read about. It isn't irritable. For real? That would be supernatural sort of love. Here's how the world loves. The world loves the lovable. This is what makes sense to the world. If there's something admirable in you, something desirable in you, then you might draw out my love for you. See, that's worldly love. So, there's marriages that begin with worldly love in mind, but as soon as a couple quits being attractive, uh, quits uh, producing what you hoped it would produce, according to worldly love is, the couple looks at each other and says, well, I don't love you anymore because the definition of love is I desire something in you. I want to be with you. And and uh, so they move on to the next one that attracts. So worldly love loves the lovable, but agape love is not based on how lovable the one being loved is. So when we say things like, husbands, you might be tempted to say, you don't know what it's like to live with her. You don't know what she's like. Yeah, I know what God calls me to, but she does this, and she does this, and she does this, and it's been 10 years, it's been 20 years, it's been 30 years, And we're tempted 
as men to believe that our love for our wives is to be a conditional love based on their performance. How lovable they are or how they're, uh, well, we, we feel they're doing as a wife. Uh, but the problem with that is, uh, obviously, that love's just going to end. Because we all marry sinful people. So it's really easy to get a list of wrongs, is it not? A husband and wife get a list of wrongs against each other. Well, that's easy. You, you, you marry the sinner, you live with the sinner, the list can be long, and if you're going to argue that your love for your wife's husband is based on that list, or your excuse for lack of love is based on that list, you haven't understood the very beginning of what marriage is. To hold fast to your wife is to make a covenant before God. You make a choice in marriage. It's not about your feelings. Yes, your feelings are there on your wedding day. But that's not what marriage is. Marriage doesn't amount to your feelings. It's a covenant choice to agape love your spouse forever. That's what cuts the marriage covenant. It's before God, and the reason why you invite your friends is for them to show up and say, I was there when you said it. I was there when you said, I commit and I choose to stay married to you forever, to show you agape love. John MacArthur, I think it was helpful in reading his commentary in this regard. He says, a Christian's love uh, are, but a Christian's loving with Christ's kind of love is not based on attractiveness of the one being loved, but on God's command to love. Loving as Christ loves does not depend in the least on what others are in and of themselves, but entirely on what we are in Christ. That's an, that's an incredible statement. Let me say that again. Loving as Christ loves does not depend in the least on what others are in and of themselves, but entirely on who we are in Christ. Who are you, husband, in Christ? You are beloved. You are loved by Christ. Christ's love is like a banner over you. That's who you are. And then he writes, a husband is not commanded to love his wife because of what she is or what she is not. He is commanded to love her because it is God's will for him to love her. It is certainly intended for a husband to admire and be attracted uh, by his wife's beauty, winsomeness, kindness, gentleness, and any other positive quality or virtue. But though such things bring great blessing and enjoyment, they are not the bond of marriage. Now get this. 
If every appealing characteristic and every virtue of his wife disappears, a husband is still under just as great an obligation to love her. If anything, he's under a greater obligation because her need for healing and for the restorative power of his selfless love is greater. That is the kind of love Christ has for his church and is therefore the kind of love every Christian husband is to have for his wife. So very similar uh, when we were thinking about wives submitting to their husbands, that you can't do that by looking at your husband and decide whether he's deserving. You need to submit to your husband as to the Lord, meaning out of your submission to Christ, because he's worthy of it, because he's motivating it, that's what should drive your, your submission to your husband. Husbands, it's the same way. As you see Christ and you see his love for you, you need to look, in one sense, past your wife. It's not based on how she's doing. But you owe her that love because of the wife. Christ has loved you. And so we see that the command is agape love. Selfless love. The way men are presented in our culture is as selfish boys who just take. Essentially, their wives just need to deal with them and take care of them as uh, men live out their selfish lives. That's how uh, men are presented in our culture, but that's not what God has called husbands to or husbands to be. So let's consider the source of, of this sort of love. Um, we have to know where we get it from. You're probably thinking, well, this feels impossible. Especially if the next point is, I'm supposed to love her like Christ loved the church. You need to know that this self-sacrificial love, agape love, has one fountain. There has never been a fountain or a beginning of agape love that didn't come from the sole fountain of Christ. From God Himself. God is love. All Christian love is a love borrowed from Christ. A love that has been granted to the believer that's not their own. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4.9, here's how Paul says it. Now concerning brotherly love, so that's not agape love, you have no need for anyone to write you. You know about that kind of love. All right. And then he says, for you yourselves have been taught by God to agape one another. He's talking to believers. He says, you've been taught by God agape love. Because if you've become a believer in, in the sense that you've seen your own sin, you've seen your own desperate position that you stand rightly condemned under the just wrath of God, but God in His love for you, when you were still a sinner, sent Christ to die for you. When you see that, and you see that salvation is all by grace, and you receive it, you've been taught by God agape love. 
He says, you've already been taught by God to agape one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Nobody's reached the limit of that sort of love. In Romans 5.5, Paul says this, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. God's love, husband, it's true for wives too, has been poured into our hearts through Christ Jesus. Meaning, if you tell me you can't do it, I say, I know you can't do it. But Christ can do it in you. His love can be poured into your heart. So the source of this love is from Christ. MacArthur writes, God loves because it is His nature to love. If God loved us as the world loves, He he could not love us a single human being. So if worldly love is based on how lovable we are, God could never love us if He loved with a worldly love. But he writes this, God can command His own kind of love from those who belong to Him because He has given them the capacity to love as He does. We have no excuses, husband. You have no excuses. You have access to agape love, the selfless, Christ-like love given to us in Christ. You're right. You can't do it in your own flesh and of your own strength and of your own will. But you've been born again. The Holy Spirit has been put in your heart and His love has been poured into your heart through the Spirit. That's how you can do it. In 2 Corinthians 5.11, here's the hope I want you to see, husband. Paul is describing uh, to those in Corinth his, his, his sort of love. Here's what, <coughs> here's what he says. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. So Paul's saying, I want you to know us. He says, we are not commending ourselves again, but giving you a cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So he's saying, you ought to be able to boast, not according to our appearance. We're not impressive from the outside. But you ought to be able to boast about what God's doing in our heart. And then here's what he says. For if we are beside ourselves, that must be agape love, because it's beside ourselves. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If I'm selfless, if I'm not living my life for myself, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Paul's essentially pointing to his selflessness. And then he says this, for the love of Christ controls us. If you want to understand Paul, you have to understand 
that Paul's love doesn't control Paul. The love of Christ controls Paul. That's why he does all things for God's glory and for others' good. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. So he's saying the love of Christ controls us because I believe the gospel. Because I have the gospel in my sight. That's what he means when he says we've concluded this. And he died for all. Now look at this, husband. Verse 15. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. You might be thinking, I, I, how am I supposed to love in this way? Well, what you need to do is you need to look at Christ's love. You need to trust Christ's love for you. You need to believe it by faith. Because here's what we always say. Jesus Christ died for, we always say sin. And that's true. That's what's usually highlighted. But here Paul says this, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Husbands, if you're going to be good husbands, you can't live for yourself. You're called to give up your life for your wife. You're to die to your own selfishness. Your marriage isn't about you. Your life isn't about you. Your life is to be lived for the good of your wife. And if you don't know where the source comes from, you can read, you'll strive in your flesh and you'll give up. But if you understand that it comes from Christ, you'll seek to walk in the Spirit. You'll have to fight your sin. You'll have to be in the Word of God. You'll have to be close to God. The standard, which we're barely going to be able to just touch uh, this morning, the standard is Christ's infinite love for the church. Look at what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. I'm just telling you guys, that is an ocean that has no end. You're supposed to love her as Christ loved the church. It's such a big ask that you're going to be tempted to say, the bar is too high. If you don't give a reasonable bar, I'm not even going to shoot for it. Here's the problem with that. What's your excuse before gone? I've given you my spirit. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I've loved you perfectly. I've given you the word of God. I've given you the power so that though you do it, it's not you doing it, it's me doing it in you. God has not done wrong in calling us to love our wives just as Christ loved the church. But that's the standard. And that's why if you don't see repentance as a common thing in your life as a husband, 
you haven't understood what God has called you to. This is what it means to be a Christian. Husband, you ought to be asking for forgiveness from Christ and from your wife all the time as you look at what God has called you to as a husband. Repentance ought to be the very thing when people say, who are these people? Well, they're people that mess up a lot, but they repent and they turn to Christ. They don't despair in their failure, but they're encouraged by this agape love they've received from Christ, and then they get in the saddle and they try again. The application of this message in light of the standard is obviously repent and, and strive to love her how Christ has called you to love her. So how has Christ loved the church? Samuel Francis keep these words. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast unmeasured, boundless free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. How are you going to put words to the love Christ has for His church? Remember back in chapter 3 when Paul's praying for you, Christian? And what is he praying for? He's praying that you have strength. Strength for what? Strength for comprehension of His love for you. Here's what he says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power. He's praying that you'd be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, meaning your whole life is anchored in agape, love, that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The words of the hymn don't work. The, the mighty ocean coming upon me. Well, the ocean has an end. Christ has no end. And when we comprehend the love of Christ, He says we may be filled with the fullness of God. And with our little time left, what we just need to understand is the bar is as high as the bar can go. And it's not based, husbands, on the performance of your wife in any way, on her loveliness in any way. It's based on the type of love you have been shown in Christ. Romans 5.5 5 describes this type of love. Right after he says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. He then says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. See, the big lie out there in religious circles is God loves the good ones. 
and he hates the bad ones. That's not biblical. There is no good one. There's no good one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And God didn't foresee anything lovable in us when He died for us, when He showed us agape love. That's what He says. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the good ones. For the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. you realize, sinner, that before Christ, before you came to know Christ, the wrath of God was hanging over your head? But if you put your trust in Christ, He swallows up the torrent of that wrath. And He did it not because you were good enough, but because you confessed with your mouth that you weren't and that you needed a Savior. And so this is the love. We, we, we just barely touched it. We'll, we'll spend the rest of our time next week. We'll, we'll look at Christ washing His disciples' feet. What does leadership look like? Whoever gets the lowest is the greatest. Jesus washes His disciples' feet. He says, go and do likewise. Do you think you're greater than your Master? I just washed your feet. The Son of God, you do likewise. Husbands, this is the type of love that we have been called to.